During the early morning hours of March 8, 2014, Malaysia Airlines operated a scheduled flight from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to Beijing, China. This was one of the two daily flights and had a total of 239 people on board, including two pilots, 10 cabin crew members, 227 passengers and over 14,000 kilograms of cargo. After just over 45 minutes into the flight, the plane will disappear from any radar, never to resurface again. Over the next nine years, professionals, family members and internet sleuths will offer their theories on what would have happened in the air on that fateful night. Could the events preceding the flight offer us any insight on what could have brought this plane down? This is the story of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. Detective unit, I truly don't know where to start with this one, you know. Do I start off with a trigger warning? I think that would probably be the best option, telling you how I have structured this research, because I have read a book on this case and I want to recommend it to the whole world, because, you know, I'm a sucker for books written by journalists. I've studied it. it there is just a constant, constant need for more knowledge, with a constant curiosity that somebody needs to feed in me every single day. That is why I like books written by journalists, because I technically still consider myself one, even though this is the closest to journalism I have probably ever done in my life. Trigger warning here, if you have followed through and watched the video on Air France Flight 447, and have found that triggering and find just general knowledge about flights, disappearances, crashes, triggering, I would definitely suggest either taking this one in small chunks or sitting it out completely and watching a wide array of other videos on this channel because we go in depth here. There will definitely be a second parter here hopefully not more than that, hopefully I'm going to try to fit everything into a two-parter video. However, we're going into extensive detail with a lot of knowledge, a lot of side googs, a lot of side googs, insane amounts, probably the most amounts that I have done ever just trying to understand anything about airplanes, anything about how this could actually work tech-wise, and then obviously in part two, the theories. So, Trigger warning aside, let me walk you through the structure of how I plan to structure part one, and then I'll talk about structure part two after. Just like I've done with AF447 video, I think the easiest way to understand any of this is for me to actually put you into the points of view of different people here. So I will be putting you into the point of view of the crew for you to understand what potentially could have happened and what could have gone down in the cockpit, speak about the plane a bit, then put you into the point of view of passengers, put you into the point of view of Florence herself, who was viewing the CCTV footage at the airport, and then going back onto the plane and the POV of the crew. And then we are going to go into the point of view of the families to finish this video off, to wrap it up and speak about the official theory of the case based off of almost a month of investigation post the plane disappearance 
and what had happened according to the data that they have received and what happened actually according to the authorities. Then in part two we are going to pick up with further independent investigations where this case stands now and then speak about the rest of the theories. One of the theories I thought would make most sense to cover in this video once you actually hear the information that I have for you. The book that I have used for research that is extremely extensive, probably one of the longest books that I have read and extremely well-researched. It's called The Disappearing Act by the writer Florence Decenghi. She's French, okay? I can't pronounce, as you will realize soon, I can't pronounce most of the names in this video and it is a pain point. However, Florence did make an appearance in the Netflix documentary. And once I looked for these books, Obviously, yes, I'm biased when it comes to journalist books, so I will most probably choose a journalist as a writer compared to anybody else. I will most probably choose a woman writer as well. However, then, when I actually finished the Netflix documentary, Florence was one of the people that had most out-of-the-left-field theory, like one of the more outrageous theories. So I did want to read her book to just see all of the sides of the story. Like, is it a very biased account or does she go into, like, actually alternative theories? And I can tell you that, yes, even though she's very biased, she has her own version of what she thinks had happened that we are gonna talk more about in part two. She does... I mean, she has done incredible research, she interviewed insane amounts of people and does offer, like, a lot of different perspectives that I don't know that other books would have done. There are multiple books. If you have read either of them, let me know and let me know what your thoughts on those books were. But every account on this story is biased. So this book did offer me different avenues. And also, speaking of Netflix documentary, I don't know what your thoughts are, right? <laughs> I know what the internet's thoughts are, because I looked that up after watching it. I started off with it, so before even going into the book and then checking online articles and stuff, I started off with a Netflix documentary. My immediate thoughts, and still the thoughts that I have to this date, are that it was very <clears throat> mediocre. I know what I said, but I have... I'm yet to watch... Okay, I lie. There's about, like, five Netflix documentaries that maybe I would actually recommend. Everything else that I have watched, you know when you leave something and you're like, what the fuck, like, why didn't you answer the top five questions, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, like, the basics. The basics, like, it just scraped the surface. It just scraped the surface and it did it in a very inhumane way. There was just no human aspect whatsoever. There was just very few family members that were actually involved. The way it was done, I just really did not like it. It just put, like, the main three theories, and I kind of left being like, okay, vaguely, I think I know what happened. But, you know, got into my head asking about any actual details. I don't know, and, like, I could see that so many theories actually had so many faults in them, and we'll speak about those as we go along. So, what the internet also hated about the Netflix documentary, though, in particular, and it was actually taken down by the authorities in Vietnam, it was that they have kind of portrayed that Vietnam had no input whatsoever. Like, that their efforts to search for the plane were 
non-existent and that pissed off Vietnamese authorities and they have had it removed from what I've heard at least like the first episode I think of the documentary. In terms of like actually a better watch and the one that I will be playing throughout this video, I have seen a documentary on a YouTube channel. YouTube channel is called Best Documentary. I think this was genuinely dubbed and like translated from French. I think this is like done by people in France and then was just translated because there's like some poor translations when it comes to like translating flight into a robbery. So just note that if I'm playing anything from this documentary, translations and certain words might not be the best. However, it does a better way of making the story flow. And in an attempt to see what theory in part two flows better, we have to start from the beginning. We have to start from March the 7th, 2014, the night when the passengers and the crew will be boarding this flight. The passengers and the crew are going to be boarding what is known as a red-eye flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. And this is the midnight to dawn type of flight. It's called red-eye because the passengers don't end up getting enough sleep. And also because of the length of the flight as well, we don't have the situation where with AF-447 we had to have another pilot for them to take the nap on the flight. So it would be just a pilot, co-pilot, and then 10 crew members and the rest would be the passengers. And as Florence will point out, this flight would take place on a Friday, so the passengers and the type of people that you will see boarding this flight would usually be different. Those would be the people that are going to spend the weekend with the families, and usually not like businessmen or other types that you would maybe see on Monday or during the week. Most would be dressed for the cold weather of northern China compared to the heat that they are leaving behind in Kuala Lumpur. They are going to be welcomed by 12 crew members, two pilots and 10 cabin crew members, all of them Malaysian citizens. So let us speak about the co-pilot first. The first officer of Flight 370 was Farik Abdul Hamid, who was 27 years old at the time. He began his career with Malaysia Airlines in 2007 as a cadet pilot and then worked his way up to become a second officer of the Boeing 737-400 airliners. This flight would have been a milestone flight for Farid. It was his last training flight, after which he was scheduled to be examined on the next one and then become fully certified. Up until this point, he had accumulated 2,763 hours of flying experience. And for somebody who was 27, you know, getting the certification, getting this achievement, and flying with a national airline would be associated with national pride. So professionally, for his age, this man is thriving. And he seems to be doing exceptionally well when it comes to his private life as well. He was in a relationship with another pilot, and apparently they have met during flying academy days, and they took their relationship to the next level, and he proposed to her. They were fiancés at this stage, and his wife-to-be was working for Air Asia at this point, so the low-cost airline that was a competitor to Malaysia Airlines. Now, all of the comments online and from people in Farik's life speak positively 
of him. It is said that he was responsible and honorable individual, that he spent his free time coaching young people in five-a-side football, that he had recently given some t-shirts to the team. His father was heard to say that he was very proud of his son. His grandma characterized him as a good son, obedient and religious. And these comments aligned with the perspective of Farik as a good Muslim, humble and quiet that were expressed by the members of the neighborhood mosque. On the surface, everything seemed great, but as will become the case with the pilot as well, after the fateful flight, a lot of dirt came out about these two individuals. Before I go into it, let me just say this is like personal life gossip of what they got up to, sometimes yes on shift, sometimes possibly whether or not they were that much of a good Muslim, faithful type person, right? Which I can understand why somebody would look into. I get it, but I cannot for the life of me think why there was so much of a focus on both of these individuals compared to literally anything else. Because if we are speaking about the topic of one or two of these pilots, potentially and very much allegedly, we don't know actually what happened on this flight, taking the plane down, right? Whether it was mass murder-suicide, whether it was teamwork, whether it was one person, whether it was two. And the most information you can find on either of these individuals is about how creepy or flirtatious their intentions were with other women online. Which, again, we are not dealing with a case of somebody doing something to their spouse or potentially being unfaithful and then that proving to be the motive because they had, this was like a murder of a spouse or a murder of a mistress. No, that is not the case that we have on hand. So just going into this whole gossip drama, I will tell you about it because it is what you will read on the internet. And if I don't say anything about it, then people are going to be like, you didn't research this properly. However, do I think that any of this information on the co-pilot and the pilot about their personal life is relevant? Absolutely fucking not. So, the first officer, Farik Abdul Hamid, was said to have been inviting two South African teenagers into the flight cabin for the entirety of flight during 2011, from Phuket to Kuala Lumpur. He and his colleagues were said to have entertained the two girls. It doesn't go into further details as to what this means. That they have actually been smoking cigarettes inside of the cockpit and posing for pictures with them. And this information mostly came from a girl called Yonti Ross, who was a South African woman at the time, and she was featured in the interview on a current affair in Australia once this accident, or once rather this potential crash had happened. She would share the pictures, so there are the pictures of this online, of all of them inside of the cockpit just posing and smiling. She had also said that she was invited with her girlfriend into the cockpit during that flight, and that this had actually happened while they were queuing to board the plane, that Farik had actually approached them as he was just you know, walking past. And the whole premise here is, well, they were in Thailand, in Phuket, like it's a tourist destination known for the beaches and the hostess bars. And the, the women were invited to join the pilots in the cockpit and they ended up staying for the entire hour-long flight, including takeoff and landing. 
This woman never said that she felt in danger, she never even accused him of something overly sexual happening. She actually described that the pilots were just, you know, smoking frequently, twisting around in their seats to face the women instead of possibly, like, focusing on how they were manning that plane. And simply, yes, this can imply maybe this was a regular occurrence. Maybe every single time that the pilots would board a plane, or Farik, rather, here, would board a plane and he would see women, he wouldn't care about their age, that is problematic, yes, because this woman was a teenager at this point. Maybe this was something that happened every single time. Maybe he wasn't as obedient or faithful or as great of a co-pilot you know, focusing on the actual thing, like, when it comes to manning that plane, as it seemed. But does it indicate that he will do something to the plane and to over 200 people on board? Again, in my opinion, no. But I had to tell you about it. So, if we look into his actual experience, something that would determine if he is fit to travel and fly the plane is he's not that experienced compared to the pilot that he will be accompanied by, but he is to be shadowed by a very good pilot for that exact reason. Malaysia Airlines, in fact, had a rule where the co-pilot trained on a new type of aircraft has to be accompanied by a supervisor for their first five flights. And this supervisor here would be Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah, who was a 53-year-old man from Penang. He joined Malaysia Airlines as a cadet pilot in 1981, and he became a second officer with the airline in 83, after completing his training and getting his commercial pilot's license. In 1991, he was promoted to the position of a captain of Boeing 737 to 400 airliners, and then to the captain of the Airbus in 1996, and then captain of Boeing 777 and 200, so the aircraft they're going to be flying today in 1998. Now, he had more than 18,000 hours of flying experience, of which over 8,600 were on the aircraft Boeing 777, making him one of the most experienced 777 pilots at Malaysia Airlines. Farik, with just 39 hours on this aircraft, would have been among the least. We have some more information on the pilot here compared to Farik, and Florence really interviewed a couple of people from his family just to get a lot of insight on who this man really was. So, his sister would say that Zachary, or Ari, to his friends, was the eighth child out of nine siblings. He was 17 years her junior. She knew pretty much everything about him. She described the early years of them and how it wasn't easy for the large family living in Penang in the 1950s. That the dad was a policeman and their mom was uneducated at the time, so they lived in the poor quarters of that township. The children clearly understood the importance that they had to do well in school, or else. And they mentioned the sister who ended up becoming a psychiatrist in Ireland, another one who was professor of sociology in Malaysia. So, really, the emphasis was always put on fight and hustle. Basically, like, try to get as far in your career as humanly possible. To the point that the sister actually said, like, they used to tease Zachary because he was the only one out of the nine children that actually ended up not going 
to university. But his family might have gone for the usual sibling teasing of this kind, but no friends from this period of time had a bad word to say about Zachary. If he would see somebody having trouble with their homework, he would drop his bicycle, go help them out. But also, he was very much known for being creative from a very early age, and this is something that kind of followed him through his life. His sister would recall, like, even with the free time that Zachary had, despite of his pilot hours, he was a skilled inventor who would work on almost everything. One of his latest inventions was a remote control to raise and lower a chandelier in his home, for example. And whenever he would cook something new, he would always bring it to the family to taste it. On one occasion, Zachary even tried to convince his sister's husband that he had made the steamed dumplings that he had added to the broth, and it just showcases that he loved cooking and then sharing his cooking with others. He always was passionate when it comes to being a pilot, right? He didn't want to go to university. However, he knew that he had a strong passion for flying. He attended his first pilot training course in the Philippines before joining Malaysia Airlines immediately after. And according to his employment letter, which Florence got access to from Malaysian police file about him, he started working with Malaysian Airlines in 1981. Over time, he advanced to the highest positions available for a pilot in this company, serving as the Boeing 777 pilot, instructor, and inspector. And this is when you see Zachary combined his two passions, educating people and then the knowledge of planes. Because in his free time, what he would do, and this is what people know when they, you know, don't dig too deeper into the story because of the videos that they have seen of Zachary online, he would be giving flying lessons, flying remote-controlled model planes, and using his simulator that he had at his house, or making and posting videos online that would showcase his personality and would showcase his knowledge on the planes and flying. This is the guy that knew his planes inside and out. There was no doubt about it. And exactly this hobby that he had had on the side is the one that will be heavily scrutinized later. At the press briefing, after the plane had disappeared on 19th of March, it was revealed that the home of the pilot had been searched, leading to the discovery of a flight simulator. And it was revealed further that data on the simulator was recently deleted. So the FBI got on it, and they undertook the task of recovering all of these deleted files. What they had actually uncovered and what was of the interest to the investigators were five of the landing strips that were found on the simulator, all of which were at least three kilometers long, and this would be the minimum required to land an aircraft of the size of Boeing 777. The location of the runways was the other interesting thing, because they were located in the capital of the Maldives, and this is a regular destination of Malaysia Airlines. Diego Garcia, an overseas territory of the UK with a US military base, where no civilian aircraft was ever supposed to land. The hard disks of this white data would show a number of simulations of flights going off to some rather remote locations in the southern Indian Ocean. 
and the simulations would show a number of waypoints. These would be like the coordinates for each stage of the flight, for each what people would say practice run on the simulator, because the implication is that all of these flights that he had deleted off of his simulator that he had at home were practice runs for what is to happen on this night. The forensic report details seven points that the captain has made up himself and programmed into this flight simulator, and four of those were in the Andaman Sea, which is the body of water just to the left of Malaysia that we know the plane would fly over. All of the points taken together indicate a flight path similar to that that MH370 is believed to have taken, and some have suggested this was a dry run for the pilot as they were used less than a month before the disappearance of the plane. The FBI, however, will come through this data, and a few weeks later the American investigators would declare that the simulated data contained nothing incriminating. This will still not convince multiple people online, like, who believe in the pilot theory, who believe that the pilot was behind the disappearance of this plane and the mass murder-suicide. My personal question is, if the FBI couldn't prove it, like, the police investigators come through this evidence and they couldn't find anything incriminating, or rather, 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 a completely different approach, if they could, wouldn't this be something that they would most definitely present to the public, because it would not solve the case, you can't really solve the case until the whole plane and everything is fine, but because people are so centered on proving that this pilot was behind this incident, it would be the easiest thing if they had come through his phone data, which you will find out that he did, through his medical history, which again you will find out that they did, through his simulator data. If they found something incriminating, that would have solved this case, or rather put a lot of lot more doubt into people's minds, where they would have somebody, a scapegoat, they would have somebody to blame. But that just doesn't seem to be the case. By all accounts, Zachary was married. He was married to a woman that he met when they were still really young, they crossed paths when his now wife was a 16-year-old and still in school, and after some years they would marry, but we don't really know much about the wedding details. It was reported that they were able to settle down, as Zachary was just joining Malaysia Airlines as a cadet pilot in 1981, and they ended up getting married and having three children. His phone records would show that his wife was the person that he would call most often, and that also he called her just before taking off. However, then there were different reports. You will hear gossip about Zachary online, surrounding how not everything was as perfect as it seemed, just like with Farid. You will see some comments by Zachary, and it seems like it is his Facebook account, on these two different models' Facebook pages, rumors that he would try to arrange meetings with them. These comments seem to imply that he was trying to convince these twins to come to Kuala Lumpur, which is where he actually lived with his wife. 
he wrote when in KL in one message, how about KL in the other, and then when one of these models posted a picture of herself in a bathrobe, he seemed to have posted just shower, question mark. His sister did mention to Florence that he was no saint, that it seemed like he was in fact a bit of a Casanova, but that for most people with whom Florence discussed these incidents, including some of the men of his age, they just proved, if anything, that he just loved living life to the fullest. Just like with his co-pilot, is it icky? Is it kind of like making you... making your skin crawl a little bit about hearing this gossip? Possibly, you know, chatting with models, underage women, bringing women into the cockpit? Yes. Again, does it give indication that they would want to take down more than 200 passengers? No. Something in his life, in Zachary's life, however, that potentially does, and this is one of the most bizarre sidelines that I have ever indulged in, so he was reportedly a distant relative of a member of the opposition party at that time in Malaysia. Okay, let me just give you a quick lowdown of the events. The press quoted that the pilot on the day of the flight might have been distraught at the new five-year jail sentence for a man called Anwar Ibrahim. And Anwar is the leader of the major opposition party, Malaysia's People's Justice Party. And the sentencing was taking place a few hours before the flight, so on the 7th of March 2014. Some sources reported that Zachary was actually at the court during that time, and that maybe this uh, guilty verdict was what actually was a trigger before, just before, like, he was to, like, take a cab and get to the airport. The opposition leader, Anwar, would give interviews later, and he would say, like, yes, they're extremely distant relatives, but he dismissed any suggestions that the pilot may have diverted the plane as a political act, like, in his support. This guy in himself is, if you think any of these people is icky, Anwar is special. He deserves his own true crime video, okay? I went into the most bizarre sideline, checking for evidence in this trial. There was a mattress with the DNA, because this was a sodomy trial, and this man had been found guilty. He sodomized his male aide. There is proof, and he would eventually serve time. However, the connection with Zachary is just speculated. It hadn't been even proven that he was in court that day, and as I mentioned, they have come through this man's phone records. Like, there would have been something, something substantial, had there been any connection that he is acting on his orders or anything like that when flying this plane. The big question here, and something that I definitely looked further into, was the state of Zachary's mental health. Because the implication here is, what if the pilot was the one who was behind this mass murder-suicide? And in order to have something to compare it to, I have looked into the German Wings incident. And it is eerily similar to how one theory is imposing that this has played out, where the pilot had actually manually switched off the controls. So, in this case, Andreas Lubitz, a German pilot, had locked the cockpit door from the inside and disabled the digital code panel. 
Then the captain on the outside was pounding on the door and demanding to be let in. However, the first pilot refused. Alone in the cockpit, he would intentionally set the automatic pilot instructions for a plane to descend until it collided with the terrain, committing a mass murder suicide. In the case of Andreas Lubitz, however, this guy was suffering through serious depressive episodes. He received the treatment for it for about a year and a half, and it was remanded by a doctor that he needed special regular medical inspection. However, he was hiding all of this from the airline. He also was fearing that he was losing his vision. He hid that from his employer. On the day of the accident, the pilot in this case was still suffering from a psychiatric disorder, which was possibly the psychotic depressive episode, and was taking psychotropic medication. This made him unfit to fly, but the report would find that he had hidden this evidence and neither the airline nor his colleagues could have known about the circumstances. In the case of German wings, then, we see multiple indicators and the medical history to showcase that this pilot was unfit to fly. Instead, as per the police report, Zachary Smith was described as generally healthy and robust. His visits to the pharmacist every three months were for basic items, such as a toothbrush, paracetamol, vitamin C, flu medication, and gastric medication. He also used inhalers and occasionally would take Celebrex, which is the standard non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Okay, I'm mispronouncing a bunch of that. He also had a history of mild asthma since his youth, and he would undergo spinal surgery in 2007 after he had a paragliding accident. A year later, he still experienced occasional knee and neck pain and used painkillers for relief. The accident resulted in a slight limp and a hump in his gait. And while he was a casual smoker, he preferred Domingo rolling tobacco. What are you not hearing me mention? Any medication for mental health, history of depression, suicidal ideations, none of that. We know what tobacco this man was using based off of Florence's book. We don't see any history of anything to do with his mental health. A year after the plane would go missing, the interim report also collected data on him and described Zachary as somebody who had no known history of apathy, anxiety, or irritability. The report would say that he had no significant changes in his lifestyle, interpersonal conflict, or family stresses. Rather, there were no behavioral signs of social isolation, change in habits or interest, self-neglect, drug or alcohol abuse of the captain, first officer, and the cabin crew. According to his friends, who actually ended up creating a Facebook page called Friends of Captain Zachary MH370, not one person who spoke to them about Ari ever said anything troubling about his behavior. He was anything but mentally unstable. Zachary's last hours before the flight seemed to be just as normal. He was actually sleeping, like he had taken a nap, and then he just walked out of the house. He was escorted by a maid, apparently, who was carrying his luggage, while another maid would stand at the door. Then um, the Malaysian Airlines hires the cabs to transport the pilots, and rather the staff, actually, to the airport. So he went into a cab, and he was joined there by a chief air stewardess for the ride. 
It seemed like he was complaining about his back pain during this ride. However, he was just looking normal, cheerful, and smiling. According to the cab driver, he didn't make or receive any phone calls during the drive, he didn't even smoke, and he called his wife, Faiza, just to say that he had reached the airport once he did. There was only one other encounter once Zachary actually did reach the airport and before the boarding. At around 11 p.m., he ended up bumping into an old friend of his, who was the retired person, like retired employee of the Malaysian Airlines. And this would be in the departure hall. They just kind of like politely chatted to each other. And to this man, Zachary also looked entirely normal. So he checked his email account about at about like 11.13 p.m. and shortly after he would end up boarding the plane. You would actually be able to see CCTV footage of both co-pilot and the pilot go through what will be described as very lax security and then ended up boarding the plane. At the gate in Kuala Lumpur, as Zachary was overseeing the refueling of the plane, 227 passengers would be boarding and taking their seats. They were from 14 different countries, but the majority, 153 of them, were from China, and more than half of the rest were Malaysians. Among those on board, we would have a generation of distinguished calligraphers. There was actually a group of 24 Chinese artists and five staff members that were on board of the flight returning to China after attending a cultural exhibition in Kuala Lumpur. So they all came from different regions in China, but the oldest passenger on board was 79-year-old Lu Butang, who was a renowned calligrapher whose work had been included in dictionaries by cultural institutions in China, Britain, and the US. There was a 73-year-old calligrapher and retired professor who had earned numerous accolades for her work, Zhao Zhao Fang. According to reports, there was a doctor called Yu Chen Li who had recently completed his doctoral engineering degree at Cambridge and had begun working in a prominent geotechnical position in Beijing. A spokesperson at Cambridge University would confirm that he was a talented and likable person who had a bright future ahead of him. There was a couple who was returning home to their sons after they had been vacationing on a beach in Vietnam, and they were en route back to Beijing. According to reports in Canada, this couple, Muktesh Mukherjee, a 42-year-old Indian-born Canadian who worked for the U.S. firm Ex-Call, met his wife, Bai Xiaomo, during a business trip to China in 2002. Just before boarding their flight, Bai shared images of their trip on social media. The couple's two sons would be eagerly waiting for them to come home, and in the 1970s, Mukherjee's grandfather, who was a former Indian government minister, actually died in a plane crash outside New Delhi. His family was praying that the couple had not encountered a similar fate. They would say, miracles do happen. We pray it will happen this time, and Muktesh will come back to us. Muktesh Mukherjee and Xiaomo Bai had been on vacation and were on their way home to their two young sons in Beijing. As parents, um, nothing was more important to them than those kids. Um, everything they did was, was surrounded those kids. They're, you go to their house and it was covered with pictures of, of, of their boys. 
On the flight, there were also Norli Akmar Hamid, who was 34, and her spouse, Razahan Zamani, 24, both from Malaysia. And the two of them first met each other while they worked at the Japanese supermarket franchise in Kuala Lumpur that's called Aeon. Local sources would report that the couple, who worked as a sales assistant and admin assistant, tied a knot in 2012. They were embarking on their long-overdue honeymoon to Beijing when they boarded this flight. Before the trip, Miss Norley would post a picture on social media of one of their cats sitting on a suitcase, and the Wall Street Journal here actually said that this would be the couple's first time on a plane. Then there was Philip Wood, who was a 50-year-old IBM executive from Texas, and he was one of the free American passengers on the flight. According to his younger brother, James, who would speak to Wall Street Journal, he was a passionate traveler who had recently been relocated to Malaysia and was looking forward to his new life there. He had all of the intentions of this journey to Beijing to be his final one before settling in Kuala Lumpur. Reports would suggest that he had two sons from a previous marriage that lived in Texas, and his dad told the New York Times that the family was trying to stay strong during the difficult time and come to terms with the tragedy. In Beijing, an American woman waits with the same eagerness, the return to China of his partner, Philip Wood, also a passenger on flight damage 370. We're in the process of moving from uh, Beijing to KL. Uh, we've been in Beijing for quite some time and we're ready for something new. You know, we were both really excited to see each other. It had been February 9th that we'd said goodbye here in KL. The wait for the families of the passengers begins. The plane was announced late. The minutes pass. Philip Wood's girlfriend will become one of the prominent faces in the investigation of the disappearance of the plane, and also one of the supporters of the alternative theories. And another woman whose face you might be familiar with, if you have heard of this case or have watched anything on it, is the wife of Paul Weeks. Mechanical engineer Paul Weeks from New Zealand was also on the way to his new job. The former soldier moved his family to Perth in Australia after the earthquake in Christchurch. And before he left home, he took off his wedding ring and watched and gave them to his wife for his two young sons. He said, if something should happen to me, then the wedding ring should go to the first son that gets married and the watch to the second. Paul Weeks is a husband and father of two. He was on his way to start a new job in Mongolia, his dream job. Before he left his home in Australia, he gave his wedding ring and his watch to his wife, Danica. This is you leaving. He said, I'm going to leave my wedding ring here. Should anything happen to me, I want the, uh, the ring to go to the first son that's married and um, the watch to the second. And I, I said something to him like, don't, don't be stupid. Just, you know, just come back and, and I'll give it back to you and you can give it to them. On board of the flight was also Zhu Kun, a 35-year-old experienced martial arts practitioner and a stunt double for actor Jet Li. He had worked on several films, including The Forbidden Kingdom, as reported, and Mr. Kun had been in Malaysia for choreographing a production when the plane went missing. Nine of those on the plane were old friends, pensioners who made a journey to Nepal and were on their way back home. Australian couple Mary and Rodney Burroughs were also among the missing, and their son Jaden said that his family was heartbroken, this stage of their life has been cut short. Reports say that they had been traveling with friends and fellow passengers Catherine and Robert Lawton. 
Now, Mr. Lawton's brother said that Dad phoned him that morning and said Bobby's plane's missing, and they couldn't believe it. They still can't. We just want to know where it is, where the plane came down, if there's anything left. For Kathy and Bob Lawton, traveling with best friends Rod and Mary Burrows, this was a bittersweet trip. Kathy was losing her eyesight due to glaucoma, and they'd embarked on this five-week holiday to Malaysia and China before her sight went completely. My last words to both of them, I gave them a kiss each and just said be safe and look forward to seeing them. Amanda Lawton is Kathy and Bob's daughter. Jeanette McGuire is Kathy's sister. But she was very, very nervous actually about their flight. She kept asking everybody how safe was this Malaysian airline. She didn't know enough about them. Um, we all just said they're great, you know, worldwide state of the art. Do you think she might have intuited something? I, I think so. Um, pretty much from, a, from about November last year, she was going on it about how she's been having all these bad dreams, nightmares. Um, and we're just like, Mom, you're being silly, you're just being a worry ward. 30-year-old Huang Yi was also on her way home to her five-year-old daughter. She works for a semiconductor company based in Austin, Texas, and was on board with 19 of her colleagues. Rodney and Mary Burroughs from Australia are looking forward to becoming first-time grandparents after they returned home. They were beginning a long-planned trip with their good friends Catherine and Robert Lawton. The Lawtons were known as doting grandparents. A friend described them as passionate travelers. This group of artists from China were in Malaysia to display their work. Most of them were on the flight back to Beijing. Among them, the oldest passenger on board, 76-year-old Lu Rusheng, a renowned calligrapher who was traveling with his wife. Then there was the youngest passenger. At just 23 months old, Wang Mokeng was one of the youngest passengers on board of the flight. He was returning from a week's holiday in Malaysia with his mother, Zhao Weiwei, 32, and his father, Wang Rui, who was 35. Two of his grandparents were also on board of the plane. The families of other children of the Mohang's daycare center joined the family in Malaysia but returned on separate flights. His family reportedly said that they were trying to get away from the bad air in Beijing for a while. The loved ones of these passengers have waited with prayers and with hope. Strangers, mostly children, have left pictures at the airport in Malaysia. This one reads, we miss you, we love you. This one simply says, please come back. The writer of the book got access to the CCTV that I couldn't find anywhere, but this would be the CCTV from the airport of the passengers standing out in the crowd as they were going through the security. And there she would spot the 20 engineers and researchers employed by the American electronics company Freescale Semiconductor, all of whom were Malaysian or Chinese. It's also possible to recognize some of the passengers referred to in the press reports, such as the celebrated calligrapher with the magnificent white hair, the stuntman who had an impressive career under his belt, and then also the Australian couple. The Australian couple that, for example, stood out because one of them was holding an Akubra, which was a well-known Australian head brand in his head. The four French passengers also stood out in the mainly Asian crowd. A mother, accompanied by three young people, her daughter, one of her two sons, and his French-Chinese girlfriend. After a week's holiday in Malaysia, they were returning to Beijing, where they live. At this very moment, their dad was in Paris. 
he was set to board another flight from Paris to Beijing a few hours later. And when he does, all he would know is that his wife and children are on their way there too. At the same time, Ghislaine Watrolos is also on a plane bound for Beijing. He is eager to be reunited with his wife, Lawrence, 52 years old, and two of her children, Amber, 14, and Adrian, 17. On the evening of March 7th, I took a plane from Paris to Beijing. My family was coming back from a week in Malaysia, vacation, February break. I had to spend the second week with my children. The dad here is one of the main faces of the investigation of MH370, at least when it comes to Europe. And his name is Ghislaine Waterloo, originally from France, but had been living with his family in Beijing, China, for six years. In March of 2014, him and his college-going son, Alex, were in France. And his wife, Lawrence, the 17-year-old son, Hadrian, and 13-year-old daughter, Ambre, were on the beach vacation near Kuala Lumpur. So they had actually planned to split their family this way in order to plan their trips carefully so they could maximize the time that they spent together. The other Caucasian passengers were the middle-aged American, two young Iranians, a New Zealander, a Russian, and two Ukrainians. And there will be some passengers that will later be connected to conspiracy theories, but also some that will showcase just how lax the security procedure on this airport really was. The two Ukrainians, for example, had completely untraceable tickets. So... Florence couldn't find, and nobody really could find, where they were purchased. There was no travel agent, no method of payment, no place of issue, which was highly abnormal, as you can guess. And these two men happened to be seated on row 27, right below the SATCOM antenna. Of all the passengers who boarded the flight, according to the writer of the book, if you were to pick two as being hijackers, the Ukrainians are the ones who best look the part in terms of the age, their physical condition, appearance, and body language. And then, of course, the dodginess of these two people having the tickets that cannot be traced. The untraceable tickets weren't the only odd thing, because there was a case of two men traveling with stolen passports. When the disappearance happened, right, they were looking into the passenger list to inform the families, they actually thought there were four people traveling with stolen passports. However, it turned out it was only two. I love how that is supposed to be reassuring. It's, it's only two guys. Like, they were letting anybody and anything on this plane, and this is just the beginning of that saga. So when the passenger manifest was first released at the end of Saturday, 8th of March, the spokesperson for the airline had said that this is the list of everybody on board and that all of the families have been informed. However, then two of the survivors came forward. These two Italian men called Luigi and Christian. And fortunately, the family of Luigi, who had his passport stolen six months before this, was not informed of his apparent disappearance. Christian, however, was from Austria, and who was, he was also safe at home when the flight went missing, having his passport stolen in Thailand two years before. However, it would then later be discovered that the two men from Iran 
Puria Noor Mohammed, who was 19, and Sayed Mohammed uh, Delabar, who was 29, had been using the stolen passports that they bought in Thailand. Everything about this is eerie. Like, was there a passport check in place? Why didn't they notice there were people who have clearly not looked like themselves in these passport documents? However, also then imagine if you are a survivor, like, yes, you feel lucky for a second and then you hear this on the news and you hear that you are among the dead, right? Like, your name is there among the dead. You're like, no, I am alive. However, how did this even possibly happen? This provided also the ideal lead on the terrorism front that was anticipated when it comes to the theories. However, later Interpol looked into this, the two Iranian men that were traveling with the stolen passports, and they would announce that the two men had no terrorist connections. They simply hoped to rejoin their families in Europe and tried hiding their nationalities traveling via Beijing. In total, out of 239 people on board, 153 were Chinese citizens followed by 50 Malaysians, 7 Indonesians, 6 Australians, 5 Indians, 4 French people, 3 Americans, 2 Ukrainians, 2 Canadians, 2 Kiwis, 1 Dutch person, 1 Russian passenger, 1 Chinese, and 2 Iranians. It was almost midnight on Friday, the 7th of March 2014, and Kuala Lumpur International Airport switched to the nighttime mode. Most of the shops were shut at this time, and the passengers are just waiting before their gates. And at this airport, like, the procedure was that the passenger and hand luggage security controls are carried out just before boarding. This would be a familiar procedure for the seasoned air travelers. So they would put their belongings on the scanner, take out their computers from their cases, remove the belts, empty the containers of the pockets, the usual thing. Sometimes they even had to take off their shoes and their socks. However, what Florence would witness on those videos, the security controls were not that strict. Some slackness was very much visible. Just like with the videos that you have seen with the pilots, they would not be returned back if they were to have a wristwatch, if their belt was to trigger the security alarm. There would be bottles of water that would have been scanned, and then you would see, like, at the other end of that metal detector, just the passengers taking them, taking the bottles of coke or water or whatever, instead of, like, emptying the liquids before going through the scanner. They would be going through the security archway still wearing a coat, a belt, or a hoodie. It is 22 o'clock. Surveillance cameras show the pilot and the co-pilot safely pass through the security gates before getting on the plane. Nothing to report. Next are the ten hostesses and stewards of the Malaysian. It's a very ordinary, trivial theft. The pilot and the co-pilot will take note of the flight plan, will observe the list of cargo, freight, are going to look at the weather, which is good that day, and take a quick look at the passenger list. It's a robbery like there are 20,000 every day in the world. An hour later. Passengers bound for Beijing are invited to join the departure lounge of Flight MH370. Boarding is as ordinary as it gets. Check-in, luggage check, passport control. Eleven twenty p.m. Passengers sit on board the Boeing 777. The cabin is not full. 
there are 227 passengers. We mainly have Orientals, Chinese people, Malaysians stopping over or leaving for Beijing, and a few Westerners, including a French family who is the Watrella's family. A French family living in Beijing. The mother Lawrence, the daughter Amber, the son Adrian, and his girlfriend Yan, all seated in the same row. At 25 seats D, E, F, and G. There is also a rather unusual group of travelers, 20 Chinese and Malaysian engineers working for the same company. Freescale, an American company very advanced in miniature electronics. At seat 11C, another IBM engineer, Philip Wood, the only American adult on MH370. At 12.25 a.m., the Boeing was finally ready to leave. The aircraft they were about to board was 70% owned by the Malaysian government. They had had impeccable safety reputation. The business class travelers would anticipate the airline's chicken and beef kebabs with Thai sauce, and until 8th of March 2014, their last serious accident was in 1977. They had a good track record when it came to incidents without any flags raised. However, where they were underperforming would be their commercial results, meaning they weren't as profitable as they possibly once were. And this was basically due to the other low-cost competitors, like, for example, yes, Air Asia, that popped onto the market. As for their operations, the track of incidents was normal. There was about 15 in both 2014 and then 2015, and every single one had reports on the case, like whether it was tires exploding on takeoff, whether it was engine problems, or whether it was something like smoke in the cabin. However, there was one incident in March of 2014 that seemed not to have been logged and had been hidden for about two days. And this would be the fire that broke out at 4 p.m. on 26th of March 2014 while the plane was at the avionics workshop. Now, what Florence put here is we don't have any details here, like how did the fire start, what equipment, what documents were destroyed or damaged, why did the fire protection system not work? There was just no explanation given for this one incident, and that was just unprecedented in 30 years of the activity in the same location. This was then followed by the disappearance of MH370, and then post this disappearance there was another aircraft that would be lost, rather shot down. Four months after MH370, Malaysia Airlines would lose a second Boeing 777 over Ukraine, when it was shot down by a Russian-made missile with 298 people on board. The national airline share price would take an 18% hit. And this is when the airline's ability to survive after losing 85% of its market capitalization in five years, was in question. There was a lot at stake, is what I'm trying to say here, and the airline would have to look into how to save face in the light of the disappearance of MH370, and then in the light of a plane being shot down four months later. That brings us to, beyond the passengers and the crew, while boarding, there will be some cargo that will be put on the plane. Did we speak about any cargo when we were talking about the AF-447? No, 
No, why? Because there was nothing suspicious about it. Here, complete opposite. This cargo, everything about it is so insanely suspicious. It led to so many side searches. So much weird shit is happening with this cargo, okay? So, okay. Florence dedicates at least like a whole chapter when it comes to this cargo, and you will soon understand why. This is my too long, didn't read version of it, trying to like simplify this as much as possible. So, the plane's cargo manifest had yet to be made public after this incident. However, this is something that should have happened or rather should have been made available within minutes. Could have been made available within minutes, right? Because they logged this prior to the cargo being put on the plane. Cool, cool. Unless there was obviously something to hide. It took the airline two months to produce this document. Now you might be wondering why. What is on this flight? Fruit. A lot, a lot of fruit. Mangosteens, to be precise. Once the document was finally published on the 1st of May 2014, it looked like it wasn't really complete. So, the website dedicated to the flight MH370 would show Florence eight PDF files. However, there were some files that were identical, meaning that some were missing. So, the documents on the website were a series of poor quality scans and a lot, a lot of blank pages. The mangosteens, rather, 4,566 kilograms of them were stated to allegedly come from Muar, which is in Jokor State, south of Kuala Lumpur. Now, four and a half tons, equivalent to, as Florence would put in this book, the world's largest hippo would be at the back of this plane. Why is this sus, right? Like, it's fruit, it's a passenger flight, like, people can be, yes, transporting, like, fruit from one country to the next. Yes, because of the quantity of it. However, it wasn't even mangosteen season. That wasn't all, however. The local media would add to the confusion, saying that Muar, the town that was listed on the manifest as the place of origin, did not even have any mangosteen orchards. The Malaysia's inspector general of police will say, well, this is actually very easy to explain. Muar was not a place that they originated from. Rather, this is where this fruit had been packaged. Let's say all of this made sense for a second, right? Five-page form was required to transport this fruit, but it didn't exist because the documents, as I mentioned, were duplicates and then a lot and a lot of blank pages. There would be the investigation report that was published a year after the plane's disappearance, and it completely ignored this anomaly, stating that the mangosteen fruits on board of the plane originated from Posenkian, Muar, Johor, Malaysia. So, not that they were just packaged there, but that they came from this city. And about 2,500 kgs of this fruit was harvested from there, and then the rest from Indonesia. The report would even say that even at the time of writing it, the fruits are still being exported by the same company to Beijing in China. Florence offered in her book, sort of like, if we are not believing that these were mangosteens, what else could it have been? It could have been genuinely 
anything. But she offered kind of the options of rhinoceros horns, elephant tusks, pangolin scales. Like, was it some sort of trade market that people maybe didn't want to be seen on the official documents? There was another bit of cargo that generated interest here. So, apart from over 4,000 kgs of uh, mangosteens, there was over 2,000 kilograms of lithium-ion batteries and accessories. MH370 was carrying a consolidating consignment of more than 2,000 kilograms of lithium-ion batteries, walkie-talkie accessories, and chargers. And the shipper here was Motorola. So, I will be putting some screenshots from the official documents, from the official report from 2018 that was published on this case. Uh, some people would be very much confused, like the CEO of the Malaysia Airlines, who would acknowledge a week after the disappearance that the weight was actually just 200 kg of lithium batteries and they were properly packaged. However, as we see, the number here was quite different. It's quite concerning again, if this document had been made public, why such a discrepancy between 200 and 2000? The issue here is that lithium batteries have been known to cause fires in planes, electric cars, and even inside of the computers. Side search here. Why do they make us basically take the laptops out of our bags at the airports? And usually, depending on different websites, you will be asked to always have the laptop in your carry-on luggage, not in your suitcase. So, different reasons here, right? Taking your laptop out of the carry-on bag allows the security to more easily check whether something like explosives, explosives are concealed inside of the laptop. Then also, usually, and also depending on the airline, you should only be allowed up to two lithium batteries. So, that includes like a laptop and a charger. So, limited amount of this in order for the fire not to start. However, in this case, we're talking about over two thousand kgs of cargo. So, going underneath these passengers, we are not even counting the batteries in their laptops and the chargers. We are counting just the cargo. And here, at least some part of that cargo had not been scanned by the X-ray machines. This is one of the very few times that I have checked, rather fact-checked, Florence and this book on purpose. Like, sometimes I fact check it just to be like, okay, cool, correct information, good, move on. Here, I was like, this cannot be true. This cannot possibly be true. What the fuck do you mean? Because we have had, right, the untraceable tickets, we have had stolen passports, now we have... we are having some unscanned cargo because... because the reason here is that there were no available X-ray machines on the land side large enough to screen the consignments. So, they just weren't scanned. So, my question, my intrusive thought here was, if the metal detectors weren't available, would this flight have still gone ahead? If we didn't have a way to scan the pilots and the cabin crew and the passengers, would this flight have still gone ahead? Because apparently everything else was extremely lax about this flight, would it have still gone ahead? You will have to wait seven weeks for the company to finally publish the freight list. That list, there it is. 
but isn't really complete. Several strange details catch the attention of families. Among the 224 packages stored in the cargo hold, for example, there are two tons of fresh mangosteen, a tropical fruit that looks like the lychee, that the Chinese love. And here, there is a small problem. The loading list we were given is completely crazy. We are told that there are 2,000 kilos of fresh mangosteen, whereas there are none in Malaysia at the time. So, if the packages don't contain mangosteen, what does it contain? This is exactly what passenger families want to know. The manifest is incomplete. What we are being given is wrong. When it comes to loading, there are things you obviously don't want to say. There is more worrisome. In the freight list, lithium batteries are also being charged. These batteries that provide energy computer tablets and mobile phones. According to the document, there were 2,453 kilograms in the cargo holds of the aircraft. Their transport is normally prohibited on passenger flights. Maybe that's why the Malaysian airline rectified the number and minimized the quantity. Uh, I think we carried about 200 kg of lithium battery, but those are considered to be non-hazardous under the ICAO or IATA, because as long as you pack them in a, in a manner that's, uh, that's actually uh, uh, recommended. Nobody is communicating about it because normally it's not allowed. Since the accident that occurred in Dubai, it was in September 2010. A 747 from this transport company crashed shortly after takeoff. The investigation report accused the hundreds of lithium batteries that were in the cargo hold. Look what's left of the jumbo jet after the batteries have ignited. Nothing or almost nothing. So we know very well that these lithium batteries, when they are concentrated, they are explosive. The proof in pictures. Watch how four lithium batteries can catch fire in a few seconds under the effect of shock. If one starts to explode, the others are going to explode too. 200 kilos, even assuming that there are only 200 kilos, what is already huge, explodes. It makes a hole in the plane. We are 11,000 meters above sea level. Immediate loss of pressurization. There is no oxygen left. 10 times as many lithium batteries in the cargo hold of the aircraft. Imagine the impact on the crew and passengers. An explosive depressurization of the plane. Not only are you going to take a huge hit, your eardrums are going to explode, you're going to bleed from your nose, your ears. It's, it creates a feeling of euphoria, the symptoms are very, very vague. You might notice some tingling in your fingers. But above all, you are likely to pass out immediately. Be that as it may, the lack of oxygen means that in 30 or 40 seconds, it's over. That isn't all. However, when it comes to this body cargo of Motorola batteries and uh, walkie-talkies, okay? This cargo would arrive on the evening of 7th of March. The truck would be sealed by the customs and the Malaysian Airlines security before being allowed to leave the Penang cargo complex en route to the airport under escort. There will be two drivers that were interviewed later and they said that the truck was never left unguarded by them or the security escort security escort for a bunch of batteries and walkie-talkies. Why are batteries being escorted like they're a motherfucking president? What is in this cargo? What is in this cargo? The reports, the one that I have seen, the final one, will show us how the fruits was protected, right? How they have done the lab test to show us how these two loads, like if mangosteens were placed right next to the lithium batteries, would any explosion happen? Like, how those two 
loads would interact. We have a visual, actually, of where these batteries were placed. You can see that they were placed at the back of the plane. We are assured by these results of the test that it's highly improbable for any sort of explosion to have happened during this flight. That after carrying these flights, that the labs was convinced that the two items tested could not be the cause of the disappearance of the flight. However, where are the deep dives on the people that approved any of this? Where are their names to begin with? Not even deep dives, right? Where are their Facebook profiles? Where is the dirt on them? Where is information on their private life? Because something is missing here when it comes to one of the dodgiest pieces of this whole journey is the theory from start to finish about this cargo on the plane. Why was it escorted? Why was it not scanned? Who then approved of it to be on a plane? Why was the fruit out of season? Where was it produced? Was it really produced somewhere? All of that just isn't answered. And somebody, yet again, allowed for it to be carried onto the plane. Like, both of these loads that are highly suspicious, and a lot of people doubt whether they were actually mangosteens and batteries. And if it is batteries, why were there... Why is there this amount of batteries? It's things that nobody can explain. However, we also can't ring the names and then have a story of start to finish when it comes to this cargo the way that we do with the pilot and the co-pilot. Back into our timeline, the crew on the plane had already gone through boarding process and they're now getting the aircraft ready. First through would be the six air hostesses and the flight attendants, and then 10 minutes later, you will see the captain and his co-pilot. Well, not us, but Florence did on the CCTV. The two men would put their caps and the luggage on the scanner. Neither would take anything out of their bag, not even the flight iPad nor do they take off their jackets. So, it just seems like yet another relaxed body search. They don't seem to be interacting with each other, is something that Florence had observed, and we kind of do in these couple of seconds of that CCTV footage. Passengers boarding. Passenger boarding would start at 11.46 p.m., just one hour before takeoff. The Malaysian Airlines flight registered under 9M MRO would take off as it does every night at the same time, at 40 minutes past midnight. The aircraft was taking off for about 20 minutes, and then at 1.01 it reached 35,000 feet. Unlike with the Air France flight here, the conditions were ideal. They were absolutely perfect. The catering service would start, like the stewardesses started walking by the passengers, but usually at this point, like the passengers are trying to get at least some hours of sleep. Then at 1.07, the aircraft sends out its first ACARS message. ACARS stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System. And the bulleting, like the readout, it kind of looks a bit like a receipt. It provides the real-time data, so the technical performance levels that are sent to ground automatically. Now, the system is activated at regular intervals. This system and how often it sends the communication to the ground depends on the subscription that is taken out by the airline. And in the case of Malaysia Airlines, the interval is 30 minutes. 
So for some, like it depends on the route. Here, the next message from Acars to the ground was supposed to be at around 1.37. However, after flying for 40 minutes, the plane is now about to leave the airspace of Malaysia and enter Vietnamese airspace. Less than five hours now remain on this flight. It is scheduled to land at 6.30 in the morning. And at 1.19 a.m., the Boeing would leave the Malaysian air traffic control zone with a message. Good night, Malaysian 370. After the investigation, so the radars and the communication system on the ground picking up on the voices because the plane hadn't been found, right? The cockpit recorder hadn't been found, the black box hadn't been found. But after listening to the voices that had been collected on the ground, the pilot's friends, family members, and an expert were asked to identify the voices that were made between the plane and the traffic control. It was established that the speech segments before takeoff were those of the first officer, and this meant the captain or pilot in command was at the helm. However, the later voice recordings, including the last transmission, are of the captain, which meant that the co-pilot was the one who was flying the plane last. So, Zachary would be the one who would say the last words, who would wish the plane the good night. He did not sound nervous or suspicious in any way. And now, the normal procedure is that immediately after leaving Malaysian airspace, like you say good night, and then you say good morning to the next airspace here, Vietnamese, Ho Chi Minh controls to be exact. However, this doesn't happen. At 1.20, the plane passes the waypoint called Igari, that is assigned to Singapore. And 90 seconds after this, the last radio transmission, the transponder, which is the main means of communication between the aircraft and the air traffic control, is switched off. Or is switched off remotely. It switches itself off somehow. However, this button is located between the seats of the two pilots. Switching it off, and I will play some videos after this, is just like toggling off kind of like the volume of something in your car, like the volume of the radio in your car. All of a sudden, air traffic controllers in both Vietnam and in Malaysia suddenly can't see the airplane any longer. The controllers can suddenly see nothing. On board flight 370, something, or more probably someone, has switched off the aircraft's transponder, which relays its position and call sign to air traffic control. It's quite a clever tactic. This is if it was deliberate. It's quite a clever tactic to switch off the transponder just as responsibility is being transferred from one air traffic control center to another. Then, minutes later, something, or again someone, disables the aircraft's only other active transmission system called ACARS, which uses satellites to relay messages from the plane back to base and vice versa. There are only two things which could disable the ACARS, and one is that it could have been switched off deliberately by somebody on the aircraft, or otherwise something happened to deprive um, the aircraft of power, which would have switched other things off as well. So uh, it was either deprived of power accidentally, we don't have any evidence for that, or it was deprived of power by literally being switched off deliberately. 
However, switching the transponder off is not something that you would do as a pilot. Or at least from all of the resources that I have seen, it's definitely not something you would do while the plane is still above ground. Like, yes, if the plane lands, you don't have to communicate with any radars anymore, any air traffic controls. Cool, I think that's the point when you yeah, switch everything in the cockpit off. According to the information that was given to the Malaysian authorities one week after, the plane would now start to make the U-turn to the port side and then would head west-southwest. Then the ACAR system, the one that automatically controls the sending of all the technical information, is switched off as well. Or it switches itself off in some way. A quick breakdown here, and then I'm going to play some of the videos from the documentary that I have found on YouTube, right? So, transponders, they're offering air traffic controllers the location of a plane by calculating airspeed and altitude. And without it, investigators in that area are relying on a satellite that cannot offer a specific location. So basically, think radar, where's the plane, transponders based in the cockpit pilot can just switch it off as and when they want to. However, ACARS, they are transmitting the messages to the ground describing the flight phase, the time at which it occurred, and other related tech information, such as like the amount of fuel on board, or the flight origin and destination. And these messages are used to track the status of the aircraft and the crews. ACARS, however, are not located at the cockpit. They can be, it really depends on the aircraft. I have watched some videos where a car system is located under a hatch inside of the cockpit and then the pilot can just, just walk down there. When it comes to ACARS, it really looks like a whole creepy basement, like at your house, you know, when you have like all of the fuse boxes or where you top up your bills and stuff. Yes, that, but on a scale of a plane. It is where you technically can go into an avionics bay, which is what they're called, and switch these systems off. Pilots, however, are not even trained on how to do this. And only those who would want to, yes, go out of their way would know exactly what to look for. Like, because this is kind of a technical job. It is, I don't know, a mechanics job, right? Like, yes, you can just pull off different switches and different fuses, but you don't actually know what one of those does compared to the other, unless you really know those systems and really know what you're looking for. As I mentioned, then the ACAR systems are usually under hatch. And yes, depending on the aircraft, they can be in the cockpit. However, on this flight, by most accounts and that Netflix documentary, they were hidden in the underfloor avionics bay just behind the flight deck. So, not in the cockpit, but you get out of it and then it's be, like, behind the cockpit and in between that area and then, like, what is probably the first class area. It's not under a lock and key, so somebody would just lift the carpet, find the box, lift it up, and then get inside of the creepy little dungeon and then find a way to switch the ACAR system off. I'm going to play some videos to explain where this is located and also for you to visually be able to process this. ...in a Boeing, the transponder, and the ACRS. If you turn off the transponder, which is very easy to do, just switch it to off. 
The plane disappears from the radar screens, purely and simply. Deactivating ACARS is a different story, because the system is hidden in the cargo compartment of the aircraft. To access it, you have to go to the cabin. Lift a hatch and go down to reach an imposing electrical panel. To cut ACARS, you had to access a breaker, therefore a fuse, and you had to pull a fuse to put the ACARS out of service. I don't know them, but one of these fuses cuts off the ACARS. AKRs, you have to go in the hold. You have to know where the breakers are to cut it. I never learned, and none of my colleagues that I telephoned, British or French, he did not learn how to go and cut an ACARS in his machine qualification. I don't know how to do it. Sogu could have deactivated ACARS from the Malaysian Airlines Boeing. Either this pilot knew the place because he had learned about it, which is quite complicated. Well, if he's a terrorist, he knew the procedure, this fairly rare, exceptional procedure, to find the location of ACARS and especially to be able to unplug it. As I mentioned, pilots are not taught the procedure of how to switch avionics off. However, they have the ability to go into avionics bay and also to switch the transponder off. And the reason as to why that is the case that I have found online is that the aircraft should not be designed to fight its pilots. So this is why this is possible. I have then gone into like side goals on why would you ever as a pilot want to switch the transponder off or to go into the avionics bay and switch anything off, ACARS in particular here. And on both ends, I found that this is done in the interest of safety. So when it comes to transponders, the device could have an electrical short or catch on fire. And pilots would want to shut it down rather than risk a fire spreading to the rest of the cockpit or the airplane. When it comes to the air cars, similar reason like fire and electrical system protection. It's important to have the ability to isolate a piece of equipment, either by a standard switch or, if need be, through a circuit breaker. So that kind of explains why they wouldn't lock something like this away from the pilots. All of the videos, however, that you have watched, that I have watched myself, Netflix itself, makes you think that the transponder is switched off first, and then the ACARS. However, looking at the logs, we have the last ACARS transmission, which was at 107, as I have said, and if they're on the subscription that Florence mentions, like the next one should be at 137, and that doesn't happen because the transponder is also switched off. However, what I am trying to understand here is transponder is switched off at 120. So how do we know the exact moment that ACARS is switched off? There was also no message to the air traffic control or anybody on the ground about sort of any system failure, about any reason as to why the transponder would be switched off and why then ACARS would. However, the sequence of events here is something where I have some questions. Like either I am missing something and one has to be switched off before the other, or based off of the reports, we have the last ACARS transmission at 107, but then we don't have anything. We don't have the follow-up at 137, which to me means that maybe ACARS was switched off before, like right after that last transmission, and then the pilot or somebody in the cockpit or somebody remotely switched off the transponder. And that 
if that information is in different sequence, kind of points out to more flaws in the pilot theory than you might think. So let us go into the pilot theory. I thought of maybe leaving this for part two, but I will have to tackle at least this theory partially. So like the possible takeover by the pilot and the alleged mass murder-suicide here. And then we're going to tackle the potential landing at Diego Garcia next time when we speak about the rest of the theories. So this time, let's just speak about how the pilot would have taken over the plane. The theory that would definitely work in favor of the manufacturers and the plane company and without evidence or proper trial accuse a man of mass murder-suicide goes something like this. March the 8th, 1.19 a.m. The aircraft is to be handed over to Vietnam. You hear the goodnight Malaysian 370 and the plane goes into the gray zone. It's in between of the two areas of air traffic control. Maybe Zachary says something to the co-pilot as he's manning the cockpit. So co-pilot is the one flying the plane according to the voices, right? However, then the controls are handed over to Zachary. He maybe tells the co-pilot to just go out, speak to something, relay a message to whomever outside, to like one of the people, the cabin crew. Then he locks himself in. For passengers at this point, everything is routine. Zachary is in complete control and no one knows anything about it. He then heads to Malaysian Peninsula. Maybe the co-pilot realizes that he has been locked out. Maybe Zachary starts depressurizing the cabin. The oxygen generators in the masks would only work for 15 minutes, which is something that I have found out this time. I really did not need to know that because that's scary as hell. But pilot is usually said to have more oxygen. Even from the Google searches online, that's still at best up to 20 minutes. Soon, the entire cabin is quiet. At this point, we are to assume that everybody but the pilot is dead. So the pilot can fly back up in order to avoid further depressurization of a plane, and he would take his mask off. He would then fly into the darkness, waiting for the fuel to run out. And this is when he would push the nose of the plane down and slide into a dive. Based off of the data, the satellite data that we would later get when we speak about Inmarsat, right? The pilot was, from that moment of locking the co-pilot out, depressurizing the plane, to then fly over the Malaysia-Thailand border in order not to alert anybody, any radars, right? Detour to the north to avoid Indonesia, then set his course due south, where he is going to manage to do what no other pilot ever thought possible. Commit a perfect mess, murder, suicide, where no part of this plane, well, some parts when we speak about it in part two, but not a single passenger and this whole aircraft will be found. And on top of that, based off of the fuel left and based off of the satellite data, it would take him over six hours to commit the perfect mass murder-suicide. Flaws here. Co-pilot is flying the 
plane based off of the voice recognition, so he is the last person to fly the plane. There is no picture for me, at least painted, of where the co-pilot is, why would he be locked out, why would he just leave this um, cockpit, because as you know, like, everything is at stake for this guy, like, he still needs to be fully certified, like, this is something that he would want to be in the cockpit for, you know, for the full duration of the flight, observe, and just completely be supervised by the pilot that is in charge. Was he the one who has disabled the box? If the A-car's box is outside of the cockpit, who is the person who is disabling A-cars? Did the pilot just go out to disable it and then return to the cockpit and his co-pilot had never questioned any of this? Were they both in on it? And why? There's no indication of premeditation here, right? The FBI searched these men's homes. There was no premeditation that they were mates, like text message exchanges between the two of them planning this. Nothing like that, really. Nothing showing that they were friends beyond being just colleagues. And then the insane amount of deliberate actions that are all presumed, right? The transponder being switched off deliberately by somebody. A-cars being switched off while no one notices this or flags it to anybody else. Depressurization. This is the creepiest part for me. That for good 15 minutes, this man would be risking his own life to then, depending on which theory you end up buying into, either crash the plane somewhere close to where the plane was last seen, or, if you believe the whole daytime in Marsat saga, drive it for six more hours, like, mend this plane for six more hours, to deliberately have to kill 238 people, including his colleague, who is locked out in order to, what, take the mask off and then just fly the plane for six plus more hours with all of these people just dead on board? Like, that just doesn't make sense. Like, if this was a mass murder-suicide, the chances are the pilot would have done it himself. So once he is to say goodnight, is this teamwork or is the pilot doing everything on his own? I would like you guys to put in the comments, like, how does this theory flow for you? And we will discuss its continuance in part two as to where the plane would have potentially landed. But my question here is, who is landing the plane? Who is crashing it? To me, everything we spoke about so far holds the key to this mystery. From cargo, no one being held accountable, to just how convenient it would be for the airline and the aircraft to cast the blame on the pilots. We have seen it before. If you have sat with me through just how much of a blame game Air France 447 was, this wouldn't be the first time, definitely wouldn't be the last. Electronics at this point are turned off, connecting the plane to the outside world, remotely or manually by someone on the plane, and the plane vanishes off the radar. MH370 would never contact Ho Chi Minh. At 1.20, 1 minute and 43 seconds after the last radio call, as the plane passed over the Igari waypoint in the South China Sea, someone or something turned off the transponder. On controller's radar screens, this meant that the plane disappeared into the darkness. In an attempt to do a bit of a better job than Netflix did when it comes to what Vietnamese air traffic control had done, 
I will be putting some of the timestamps from the report and then also a lot of information is just from Florence's book, right? Still to try to keep this simplified. What Florence had said, the two actions, right, the switching off of the transponder and the ACAR system, at first sight rule out some of the most obvious scenarios like technical failure, pilot suicide and in-flight explosion. They suggest somebody had taken the control of the aircraft in a way that had never previously been done. However, without the ACAR system, the aircraft does not transmit even the slightest item of tech information, which, when relayed by satellite, could have enabled it to be located. Without it ACARS system, the bulletins are never sent. The 137 ACARS bulletin is not sent. The 207 one isn't either. And according to the mutually agreed rules, the Vietnamese controllers should have called Kuala Lumpur within five minutes after failing to establish contact with the plane. In this event, however, 19 minutes passed before this call was made. A controller in Kuala Lumpur asked Malaysian 370, do you read? When you lose contact with a plane, there are three known phases. INC, EOR, alert, distress. It means uncertainty, alert, and distress. First, in CERFA, the phase of uncertainty. We continue to search among us. We call ourselves the control centers. We call the planes next door. ALERFA, we are starting to implement research resources. We alert the authorities. We are preparing for something potentially serious. After a while without any contact, that obviously something bad has happened, we are going to trigger what we call the DETR ESFA. All controllers, everyone will be notified that there is an airplane, this type, this place, that has disappeared. We don't know where he is, so you have to start looking. That's a plane that diverted and landed without anyone knowing where. Maybe a wreck or an accident. Curiously, in the case of Flight MH370, it will take almost four hours for the airline to react, as this official report shows. They are recorded minute by minute, all actions that have been triggered from the moment the device disappeared from the radar screens. It states that at 1.38 a.m., Vietnam air traffic controllers inform Kuala Lumpur that they no longer have any contact with MH370. And it wasn't until four hours later, at 5.30 in the morning, this Saturday, March 8, that the search is launched. And in the meantime, Kuala Lumpur Control Tower isn't also receiving any news. It's not like they had returned to the Malaysian airspace or anything like that, or had switched the transponder or had like communicated with the air traffic at all. So at around 1.30, there was another pilot who was on a plane and they have used the emergency frequency in order to contact MH370. So they said there was a lot of interference, there was some static, but they had heard mumbling from the other end. And that was the last time that they had heard from them, as they lost the connection. Now, if the plane was in trouble, the pilot said that they would have heard, you know, Zachary making the Mayday distress call. But they were sure that, like them, no one else 
up there had heard it. So he would give this statement to the papers. There were other pilots that at this point could not reach this plane that were given statements after the disappearance. The pilots of both MH52 and MH88 were interviewed by the police and according to their statements both tried many times but failed to reach MH370. So going into our report, the 2018 report issued on this case, to sort of pinpoint a couple of things in our timeline. So we have the 139 where Ho Chi Minh first inquired about MH370. Something that stands out to me is the 146 timestamp where the Ho Chi Minh stated that their efforts were made by calling the plane many times for more than 20 minutes. Around this time, so 1.46 a.m., Ho Chi Minh City tells Kuala Lumpur that the aircraft actually disappeared from the radar screens just after they passed that waypoint in Igari. In 203, there is the communication from Kuala Lumpur control tower to the Vietnamese one that Malaysia Airlines located a plane in Cambodia. So Ho Chi Minh asked the Malaysians exactly that. And half an hour later, at 237, the operations center of Malaysia Airlines would send the Vietnamese the coordinates of the aircraft's alleged new position in the skies of Cambodia. This most bizarre fuck-up meant that the position that was given in Cambodia was based on a projection, so not real data. So what I gauged from the book, it's where the flight path should have taken them by this point in time, where the plane should have been, but not where it was. So going back to our report, you see the timestamps between 1.50 and 2.07. After this, we have three further timestamps. The Malaysian Airlines was informed that the aircraft was still sending movement messages and providing latitude at 2.37. Then they have inquired about it and nobody again knew where the hell it was. And then at 5.24, we have this message from the technical captain saying that whatever they have here suggests the aircraft had never left Lumpur airspace because they had failed to call Ho Chi Minh. They woken up the supervisor and asked him to check again and check what the last contact was with the plane. So at around 3 a.m., having checked the company's internal tracking system and finding that there was no sign of the plane, Malaysia Airlines Crisis Director declared a code red emergency. It wouldn't be for another 30 minutes after that when someone finally told the operations department that Flight Explorer was not showing the real position of the plane, only the projected position. Despite this evidence that the plane was actually missing, both control centers and Malaysia Airlines spent a further two hours trying to contact the plane before finally informing emergency services of the situation at 5.30. The plane was supposed to land an hour later. As you can see from that report at 5.24, people believed that this was the last point of contact, that the plane never left Malaysian airspace. However, if we are to trust the data that will be released weeks later, it was discovered that, thanks to the radar images from Thailand, at 2.22 in the morning, the aircraft was already northeast of Sumatra, Indonesia, on the other side of Malaysia, that it had radically changed its route and clearly just 
went beyond their projective pathway. Why? Where was it going? Why would it suddenly change route to go west instead of following the projective path towards Beijing? Malaysian Airlines didn't raise the official alert until 5.30 in the morning, an hour before the scheduled arrival time. So at 6.30 a.m., when the flight would fail to land in Beijing, Malaysia finally launched the full-scale search and rescue operation, beginning near the plane's last recorded position in the South China Sea. There is this heartbreaking video at the airport with the families gathered and the airline scrambling. They just didn't know what to tell people. They have at this point been scrambling for hours and preparing sort of like a press announcement as to how to tell people that they don't know where the plane with their loved ones is. Flight 370 is due to land. The arrival board reads, delay. Truth is, Malaysian Flight 370 is missing. Malaysian Airlines know it, air traffic controllers know it. I mean, aircraft don't get lost, but it's not there. Air traffic controllers said they haven't even seen it, heard from it yet. The relatives and friends were The there. relatives and friends, what are we going to tell them? Well, we don't have anything to tell them. I mean, what more can you do? They can't say, it's gone missing. An hour after it fails to arrive in Beijing, authorities admit flight 370 is missing. The last transmission from the aircraft was at 0107, which indicated everything was normal. In Brisbane, Jeanette and Amanda get the worst news imaginable. When did you start picking up hope? Didn't. There's always hope. We're just going to understand, you know, how does a plane go missing in 2014? It's... Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. We go into the point of view of the families now where the plane should have landed. They have seen delayed on all of the boards at the airport, and it wasn't until 7.24 that the news release had been made. It was announcing that Subang Air Traffic Control had lost the contact with flight MH370 at 2.40 a.m. Within hours, the search teams were available to Malaysia. Backed by their experience with AF-447, the Accident Investigation Bureau also dispatched a delegation from France. Now, as required under an annex of this convention by the Civil Aviation, a joint investigation team was also quickly formed. The main purpose of this international investigation team was to take everything into consideration, investigate and determine the actual cause of the accident, compared to then similar accidents, in order to avoid them for the future. And it was imperative for the government to appoint an independent team of investigators that is not only competent, but transparent and highly credible. The starting point of the investigation would be logically the last point of contact with the plane, and this would be South China Sea, which is midway between Malaysia and then the southern tip of Vietnam. The time would be of the essence here, whichever area they are to search. So here, based off of last point of contact, it would be South China Sea. Then, based on the data that they are going to receive, the searches would move elsewhere. However, what they are searching for would be, yes, the passengers, the aircraft. However, with the aircraft, they would focus on the black boxes and the cockpit voice recorders. And here, once the black boxes make contact with the water, right, 
you have to search for them with the sonar devices at the back of the boats. From the moment that they come into contact with water, the sensor activates an underwater locator, so a pinger that sends out the ultrasonic pulse. While human ears can't hear this ping, submarines, ships, and aircraft can easily detect it using sonar equipment. The problem here, and the race against time really, is the battery life of those black boxes. The pingers would only guarantee to last 30 days before running out of battery, would certainly not go over 40. So they had just about a month to find these black boxes. And their role is to keep detailed track of on-flight information, recording all of the flight data, so altitude, position, speed, as well as all pilot conversations for us to learn how the plane had crashed. From a blog that is heavily believing that the pilot is behind this, they would say that even in the event that MH370 is eventually discovered, there is no certainty that the wreckage will provide valuable information. The black box's data recovery would remain uncertain because of the extended time that they had spent underwater. While some experts believe the data may still be preserved due to low oxygen levels, others disagree, claiming that the data as well might be lost. Even if the data, even if the data is recoverable, there's no guarantee that it will reveal anything useful. Cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder also might pose a problem even if found. So with the cockpit voice recorder, it only preserves the recent history, the last two hours. Maybe we don't learn anything. Maybe we only hear the silence as the plane flies on autopilot over the Indian Ocean or into the sea. When it comes to flight data recorder, all that this is going to tell us would be aircraft's altitude and exact flight path. If you believe into the pilot theory also, what if Zachary may have disabled the flight recorders, resulting in the abrupt end of the recorded data at 120 or like 121 as the plane would pass that Igari waypoint. Despite the uncertainty, the possibility that the black boxes hold the key to unraveling the mystery remains a compelling reason to continue the search. There is a potential that the cockpit voice recorder contains a subtle clue left behind. Until the wreckage is located, this mystery is going to continue. However, what I think nobody's spelling out, just because of how scary it is, because people want to hold on hope, 30 days are long gone of those fingers on the black boxes signaling where they are to the sonar searchers. And whether or not this means that the only way we will ever find this plane is if either its debris or its bodies resurface. At this point in our timeline, it is still very possible to manage to locate the last point of contact, and then the technology is working in their favor in terms of them having at least a month to, with the sonars, try to locate the black boxes. At first, this was just assumed to be a normal plane crash. The floating debris is going to be found within hours or days, and then the main body of wreckage would be found sometime later. So neighboring countries, as well as China and the US, sent the ships, the planes, to scour the area around the last waypoint, so Igari. 
But as hours would go by, not one of them could find a single sign of this plane. When the search area would be expanded to include the other side of Malaysia, the total of 100,000 square kilometers, the media would be told that 42 ships and 39 planes were deployed. At the peak of the search operation, 26 countries were involved, trying to locate MH370. As the sonar searches are taking places, the police is taking statements, focus is still here in South China Sea. As they're taking statements, there would be different witness testimonies here by multiple villagers of sort of the islands nearby. And what struck me in Florence as well is just how aligned these testimonies would be, but not in a purposeful way, right? Like these were people on boats, then villagers of different islands. It wasn't like two friends aligning a testimony just to make it to the news. It was different people claiming they would see weird lights, bright white lights, strange noises that they heard a loud explosion all on this evening at about 1.20 a.m. The initial news reports from the East, Florence also pointed out, were heavily neglected. So the Vietnamese press was publishing on the 8th of March a statement that the plane went down 153 nautical miles from To Chu Island. Then on Sunday, a large oil slick stretching over a distance of 80 kilometers was spotted from the air around 150 kilometers south of Vietnam. So this would have been what would have indicated where the missing plane would have crashed, still indicating to the same last point of contact area. Then there was a report by China Times, which would be this news website, it was pro-China, based in Taiwan, that stated that the urgent distress signal from flight MH370 was picked up by the U.S. Army unit in Thailand, and that in their message the pilot said the aircraft was about to disintegrate and they needed to make an emergency landing. This information, if it's true, struck Florence as being important but at the time, we learned nothing further, and it was just ignored by the West. Then on 9th for March, Chinese satellites apparently spotted three large floating objects, and therefore this was debris of the plane. However, the China's official news agency waited three full days until releasing these images. And the minister of Malaysia asserted that the images were made public by mistake. As this information is being completely ignored and South China Sea is being searched, the assumption here is that this part of the sea is surrounded by Gulf of Thailand and then the coast of Vietnam and China to the north, that a jetliner, even if it's smashed to the pieces, will be noticed sooner or later. Like, there are all these sort of islands surrounding it, all of these countries. Like, it will pop up somewhere and one of them, one of those villagers, will notice them, alert the police, and they will find the plane. However, there was a reason why everything else, all of the other alternative reports, might have been ignored. 
On March the 9th, the Malaysian military would make an announcement that they had continued tracking the flight for an additional two hours after it disappeared from the civilian radar. So, unlike the secondary radar used by air traffic controllers, the military employs primary radar stations to detect aircraft by bouncing radio signals off of them, without relying on the plane's transponder for communication. I'm going to put the map up here so you can see the red route, that was the projected route towards Vietnam and then towards Beijing, and then there's the blue line this is what supposedly happened, according to this military radar. Upon losing contact with the transponder, the military radar picked up on the object departing from the plane's last known position, so Igari. This object initiated a sharp left turn past Igari before rolling out onto the southwesterly heading, retracing the path across the Malaysian peninsula and then going by the Malaysia-Thailand border. The object then entered Malaysian airspace and executed a wide right turn around Penang Island. And this flight path would leave everybody uncertain about its meaning. Why would the plane just turn west? And where did it go from here? After this statement, so between the 9th and the 12th of March, the complete confusion is going to sue. And this is on part of the press, this is on part of the airline, and how they communicated with the families. So let's speak a bit about just how much I feel for these families, because this is complete insanity. New stories trying to break the story first, and then in terms of like the passengers list and just communication from the airline with their families, it's a complete shit show. So the New York Times, for example, would state that the plane had actually climbed to 45,000 feet. This is like above the plane's service limit, like we have spoken before with AF-447. I think the limit is like 35 to 37. They don't go even above like this distance. And then it descended to 23,000 feet. They reported there was a mobile phone tower that picked up a brief signal from the co-pilot's phone. And what was not done was ever deny any of these claims, right? They were never, like, confirmed, but they were also never explicitly denied. Then there was the whole saga about the nationalities represented on board, about the passenger list, the passenger manifest that was released on Sunday, the 8th of March. The list was supposedly of everybody on board, but then we have spoken about the two survivors coming forward and then the whole saga of the stolen passports. The Thai police find Moraldi and Kozel smiling. Who tell them about their misadventures? Uh, I show report from police about stealing passport, and after uh, I make a new passport. Uh... So who was sitting in seats 30C and 34C, where Kozel and Moraldi were supposed to sit? The videos from the airport will be stripped and Malaysian investigators find out with surprise that the Italian and the Austrian have been replaced by two stowaways. Today we have uncovered two passengers which uh, was traveling on a stolen passport. Okay? And uh, we have identified one of them and, and he is an Iranian. We believe that he is an Iranian. And here he is, this young Iranian. He is 19 years old and was traveling with an accomplice, another 29-year-old Iranian. Even more disturbing detail, two men bought their tickets at the same time from Thailand, as can be seen from the numbers of their following tickets. 
The two Iranians are immediately singled out, as is Kuala Lumpur Airport and its security. We realize that the two passengers bought their tickets in Thailand the same day with stolen passports. Inevitably, it arouses the attention of investigators who are thinking of the criminal trail. How is it thinkable that after the attacks of 11 September 2001, two passengers with fake passports can pass through security checks and get on a plane without worries? Several testimonies claim that Kuala Lumpur Airport show flaws in its security procedures. Then another piece of information came out that I didn't even tell you about once we were speaking about boarding. There were apparently five no-shows on this plane. The statements were given that before the flight took off, the airline removed the baggage of five passengers who didn't board the plane after checking in. And this would have been probably, yes, alarming, but also would have caused the delay of the plane. But none of that had actually happened here. In fact, on 11th of March, Malaysia Airlines actually denied these articles that claimed that five checked-in passengers never boarded the aircraft. They said that four passengers who were booked onto the flight never checked in. Their identities were never revealed. We never actually learned about any further information here. Florence found out that there was yet another passenger who was seated in 18D, whose name, Zhao Kiwei, never actually matched up the passport number that was provided. So there was still more inconsistencies and more mess-ups on the part of the security. The turning point here that would change the course of the whole investigation would come along on the 12th of March, when the British satellite company called Inmarsat would release some data. To go into the long of it, before we can just summarize the main takeaways, Inmarsat heard the BBC News report, probably as most of the UK did, on Saturday, 8th of March 2014. They realized they had a data that could analyze these tiny electromagnetic signals, the handshake pings. It's worth analyzing them and then sharing their data with the world. This data now will, in particular, focus on something that is called handshake pings. So, Briefly, ACARS. Back to ACARS and it being switched off. If there's no GPS data, the satellite has to be used because they can't track it on just normal, regular radars. In the event that the ACARS is silent for longer than the preset time interval, the ground station can ping the aircraft, and this ping response indicates the healthy ACARS communication. Now, this is different from the satellite ping or the handshake, which is going to be used here. The basic concept is to measure the time it took for the signal to travel between the plane and the satellite and then back in order to get the distance between the two at that precise moment. Now, each of these handshakes is a ring of potential locations, so equally distant from the satellite, and none of them actually represents the exact location. Rather, it's a ring of potentially where the plane could be like a radius, but inside of the ocean or the South China Sea. For a week, we have the research done east of Malaysia, in the Gulf of Thailand. We send boats, planes, absolutely huge resources, search for the plane in the China Sea. To tell us a week later, the plane was pointed to the west. 
Indeed, on 12 March 2014, four days after the plane disappeared, Malaysia provides essential new information. The night of the robbery, military radars saw traces of MH370. There are quite a few of these primary radars in the region. They are essentially military radars. The radar is based on actually looking at the reflection of the thing in the sky, so you can't turn it off. You can hide yourself, but a commercial jet can't. When you have identified the planes whose existence you know on the tapes of these radars, in the end, a few unidentified planes will remain. Among them, MH370. Knowing how long it took for the Ping's echoes to bounce back would allow Inmarsa to determine the plane's distance from the satellite. So, they are still getting now satellite communications every hour, even after ACARS is disabled. Except for that initial period of the flight between 1.21 and 2.25, when some kind of power interruption to the plane's satellite data unit prevented the satellite from making contact. After that, every hour or so, the ground station in Perth would send a handshake to the plane via a satellite that was in the Indian Ocean. The purpose isn't to exchange information, but just to verify that the plane was still there. All of these handshakes were acknowledged by the plane until the last one at 8.19 a.m. This data by Inmarsat showed that the plane initially moved closer to the satellite during the first two handshakes, before reversing course and moving further away. Now, using the plane's fuel capacity, experts could eliminate any locations west of about 70 degrees east, as they would be beyond the plane's range. This would leave two corridors where MH370 could have flown while maintaining the time-distance relationship that was derived from the satellite data. One going to the northwest, crossing over India and into Central Asia, and the other one that was curving south, deep into the South Indian Ocean. Our plane reached the 7th arc at 8.19 a.m. However, then 15 minutes later, it failed to acknowledge a satellite handshake. And this, to the Inmarsat scientists, indicated that either the plane lost power or that it crashed sometime between 8.19 a.m. and 8.34. This meant that the final resting place of the plane was probably close to the 7th arc. So, the main takeaways here, the plane was flying, according to Imarsad, for seven more hours after the last communication, all the way up until after 8 a.m. It traveled west and then south, and the northern part was completely ruled out because of the lack of the radar evidence from those countries. ...and assuming that it flew at altitude until it ran out of fuel. Because there was no direct GPS tracking data sent from the aircraft, its final course and location had to be reconstituted from data picked up by the Inmarsat satellite, which received hourly maintenance broadcasts from the plane's ACARS data link system. In the time from receiving the last transmission to the crash, which could have been anything from a few minutes to almost an hour, the plane could have flown on for hundreds of kilometers. By comparing the timing delay from the ACARS system to it arriving at the satellite situated over the Indian Ocean, the Inmarsat engineers were able to determine a possible route along the so-called 7th arc that stretched from Central Asia to the north 
to the Southern Oceans in the south and passing about 2,000 kilometers west of Perth, Australia. Ruling out the northern path due to a lack of radar evidence from the countries that it would have had to have flown over left the southern route as the most probable. The data pings also continued for further six hours after the military radar lost contact with it over Indonesian airspace, meaning that it must have been in the air and operational during this time. Once the Inmarsat data will be shared to the public, the South China Sea searches will terminate and all of the focus is going to be where Inmarsat had stated that the plane had either lost power or crashed at 8.19 a.m. And this would be Southern Indian Ocean. They have stated this is the type of analysis that has never before been used in the investigation of this sort and that because of how the satellites work, this is just a general location that they cannot give us the final few feet and inches where the plane had actually landed because that's not this sort of system. I have not managed to dig up any dirt on Inmarsat that their data was previously being proven wrong, anything like that. They have been around since 1979. It does seem like they have done some serious work for the U.S. Navy and people in Netflix documentary point that like it remains to be seen like whose pocket they're actually in. However, something that stood out to me within Marsat is there are other satellite service provider companies in the world. Inmarsat is not the only one. Why not consult others while, yes, trusting this, searching the area and be like, okay, cool, hey, there's other people that would want to prove that they're able to solve this mystery. There's other satellites out there in the ocean and other companies who probably can analyze them. Can we compare this to have, yes, the unbiased, probably same results? And then we can move the searches of this plane elsewhere. I don't know, that just would make a lot more sense to me. However, these things would define the story that the world will hear, and this once company, one company results would move these searches completely from the last point of contact to the new last point of contact, just of a different thing, of the handshake things, of the satellite signals, compared to the actual ACARS transmissions. For two days after sitting on this Inmarsat data, Minister of Defense and Transport would deny the new information as much as they could. However, at this point, maybe they were actually pushed to reveal this story to the world because the information that the families were getting and the information that everybody was getting was just two all over the place. And there were already reports of like, yes, potentially, you know, the co-pilot phone, co-pilot's phone was switched on. There was also reports of the phone of Philip Wood being used secretly on the plane, that he was actually using the kick messaging service to communicate with somebody. And that in this SMS conversation, Wood mentioned to this kick user that he was using his phone secretly, that the temperature in the cabin was warm and that there seemed to be a problem with the aircon. He said he was struggling to breathe, allegedly, but he seemed to be in no panic because in the last message he said he had been in contact once he arrived in Beijing. 
This kick user could not be tracked by Florence or anybody really and everybody believes that this is a bogus report, that this was like photoshopped and stuff. However, it might have been something that pushed people to actually finally make a statement. All these reports that are all over the place and sort of some of them saying like, hey, the plane was still up in the air or was possibly landing somewhere and people were actually getting the signals on their phones. So on Friday, March the 14th, the news would finally break. And it would break with the White House spokesperson announcing new information and a new search area referring to the Southern Indian Ocean. Because of this, Washington was the one to force Kuala Lumpur to emerge from the silence. So on Saturday, 15th of March, the Malaysian Prime Minister would make a statement. They had confirmed that the data transmission systems of the Boeing 777 had been disabled and that Inmarsat's theory that the plane flew until 8.19 a.m. along a northerly or southerly corridor was correct. They would also say that the theory of a deliberate act by someone on the plane with the proviso that whoever seized control of the aircraft would have to have had solid flying experience. Between this statement that they made on the 15th and the statement they're going to make now on the 24th of March, these families are going for agony. Every single evening at 5.30 p.m., Defense and Transport Minister and Executive Officer of Malaysia Airlines would line up to face another press conference. And there was no new information coming to light, so the authorities would use these press briefings to kind of deny the information going around. No, they don't know the plane's path. No, the plane wasn't crossing over the Maldives. They're not going to apologize to the families. They're not going to disclose the data received from the radars. Each passing day, it just looked like they didn't know what to say and they didn't know how to face the families. And at this point, the families, their loved ones, are hoping that everybody is still alive. They're hoping for some hostage negotiations. At least it would mean that the plane landed somewhere. As they were facing the press, the Inmarsat scientists were refining their calculations. They had not previously used the ping frequency data. These two flight path options, north or south, were so different that the frequency data could eliminate one over the other route. So they do their math, they're getting a good match between the measured data, the predicted data, and suddenly the graphs had matched, the data worked, the calculation was solved. Through their calculations, which, as Florence would point out, and they would point out in the interviews with The Guardian that I have seen, had never previously been attempted, the scientists had reached the conclusion the northern route was eliminated. Only the southern route remained. So their evidence was sent straight to the Malaysian authorities. 777. Thanks to a small box. This famous ACARS case, it receives information from the engines in computer form. It's been cut, but behind this ACARS case, there is a small box called a modem modulator demodulator that translates this computer language into plain language. And it is this modem that sends a message to the satellites. So this modem has nothing more to transmit. But he sends a beep to the satellites every hour to say, I am here, I have nothing to say, but I exist. 
The study of these beeps by the company in Marsat will determine a line going from north to south, along which the plane was able to move. This line goes to Kazakhstan, to the north, and it goes off the coast of Perth, to the south of the Indian Ocean, to the south. It's not possible that he went back north, otherwise the radars would have seen it. So since he didn't go north, he went south. At 1.38 in the morning, the plane would have headed south, and according to this trajectory, the search area promises to be colossal. And just like that, without consulting any other experts, because none of the countries along the corridor had detected any unidentified planes crossing their airspace, nor had anybody seen the plane crashing or landing in Central Asia, the Northern Corridor was ruled out. And that meant that our plane must have turned south into the Indian Ocean. Based on MAF alone, on March the 24th, the Malaysian Prime Minister held a press conference at 10 p.m. local time to address the disappearance of Flight 370. He would inform the media that he had been briefed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch and in Marsad. The plane's last known position was in the southern Indian Ocean. Since there are no places in the vicinity where it could have landed, the conclusion was that the aircraft must have crashed into the sea. The worst possible scenario was announced to the families via a text message in these words. Malaysia Airlines deeply regrets that we have to assume, beyond any reasonable doubt, that MH370 has been lost and that none of those on board survived. Finally, after nearly three weeks of searching, without a single piece of the aircraft being recovered, Malaysian Airlines are forced to admit the worst. Flight MH370 ended in the southern Indian Ocean. Some families are told in the worst possible way. Malaysia Airlines deeply regrets that we have to assume beyond reasonable doubt that MH370 has been lost and that none of those aboard survived. As you will hear in the next hour from the Malaysian Prime Minister, we must accept all evidence suggests the plane went down in the southern Indian Ocean. How did you handle that? Did you I, didn't, I, did, I didn't handle it. Hysterical, obviously. Just sickened. Sickened that someone would actually send me a text message to say that my loved one was dead. And this is my husband, my loving husband, father of my children, and he sent me a text message. By a text, despite the fact that two-thirds of the passengers were Chinese, it was sent in English. Not that that makes it better, because imagine getting a text message that the worst possible scenario had happened, that you should presume, based off of some mathematical, statistical evidence, that your loved ones are just dead, and that they are not even dead and buried where you initially thought they were. No, it's a completely different location. The family members were being asked to accept that their loved ones should be declared dead, based off of the calculations that were almost unverifiable, and without any possible piece of physical evidence for the theory. And if nothing is done, this is what is going to be written in the history and aviation books about the disappearance of the flight MH370. It was a deliberate act to hijack the aircraft and change its course towards the southern Indian Ocean. 
the figures were 239 civilians, for reasons unknown. Crash site, unknown. Accountability, none. Proof, none. Debris, limited, as we are going to talk about in part two. Search cost, 200 million. Results, none. Generally considered the greatest mystery in the history of civil aviation. The official theory explains the disappearance of the plane in three different events that took place during the flight. The intentional deactivation of the transponder and ACAR system, the plane's unusual maneuver of turning to fly over Malaysia, and lastly, the plane's seemingly aimless flight that ended in the southern Indian Ocean. The official theory would become that the plane simply disappeared. And that is where we will pick up in part two. There is nothing quite like coke at uh, 9 p.m. just to ensure that I really do not get enough sleep ever again. I have been having nightmares, I'm not going to lie, with this research the same way that I have with any deep dive, any multi-parters, they seep into my dreams. So, the way that I plan to structure part two, but haven't scripted it yet, so this might change, I plan to pick up exactly where we left it off, summarize the rest of the searches, what had actually been found in terms of physical debris, what kind of evidence was still ignored during those searches that Florence mentions in her book, where does this stand now, the investigation and just the searches into the aircraft, what does it actually mean for us in terms of black boxes, the data that might be on the voice recorders, you know, on the tech systems, anything like this, like nine years later, what still might be found and what can it mean for the finding of this aircraft and of the people that were on board of it. And then we'll go into the main theories. Now, I only plan to cover the big theories, well, rather the ones that have some beginning, middle, and end, like that have some flow to them, in an attempt for us after this to be like, okay, based off of these theories, which one flows the best. So, this is where I hand it over to you, to the comment section, to tell me about pilot theory, any questions that I have asked in this video, any information that I might have gone wrong or that you know more on and you want to fill in the gaps, let me know. Just like in many other deep dives, I will then use anything that I haven't mentioned or anything that you might find crucial, put it all in the pinned comments so that there is one pinned comment with all of the information that I either might have missed out on or haven't mentioned that you have more information on, and in that way somebody coming into the video, right, goes in for the deep dive and then can see that as the pinned comment as well as your comments and others interacting with them. But engage, this is super important when it comes to these videos, if you do like deep dives, but also in terms of people's theories, because I think there is certain information here and so many theories that have insane amount of flaws that just aren't pointed out anywhere else that I have seen it. But for now, Maya out, drinking coke at 9pm because 
life is tough sometimes. Sometimes you dream that a cat is on your shoulders and you freak out and you shake and you scream at like 3 a.m. I'm cutting so much rambling because I'm seeing the batteries about to die. The next video should be with you in about a week because I'm pre-recording both these so I will try to schedule them so that they come within the space of a week and you don't have to wait for long. Okay, Maya out, Maya out. Jesus, as if I wasn't stressed enough. Why is this thing banging at me? Bye. Bye. Bye.